Romans chapter 4. I'm going to read this swath of scripture for you. And then uh, we're going to have what I have called before a yellow page sermon where your fingers will do the walking. The young ones don't even know what that means. They don't even know what a phone book looks like. But um, after all, you have Google. What else could you need? Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness, just as David, who speaks of the blessing on a man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, saying, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Now you should write that one down and underline it and highlight it. That's a beautiful truth. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Amen? Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham and to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. And for this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only those who are of the law, but of those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations, I have made you. In the presence of him whom believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb, and yet with respect to the promise of God he did not waver in unbelief but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God." And being fully assured that what God had promised was able, he was able also to perform, therefore it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions, 
and was raised because of our justification. Brothers and sisters, I want to speak to you on a subject of conviction. Abraham did what he did because he was convicted that what God said is what God meant. And he was convicted, that had the conviction that, that God says what he means. And he means what he says. Abraham was a hundred years old. He definitely would have been a poster child having, wanting to father another child for, particular, for a few pharmaceutical companies today, perhaps. And Sarah might also be somebody that would be uh, looked upon being the age she was at the idea of having a child and she would have probably been on many talk shows as to what was she thinking about doing that. But in this passage you see something about conviction here, a hill to die on. Abraham had decided that God had said and for him that was good enough, although he'd never see it. He'd see the sons, but he'd never see the nations, but he believed it. And not only did he believe it, but many more things. And, and then God came and made the great demand of him to offer up to God his only begotten son from himself, his only son from Sarah, that union, that miracle baby. And he went and bound him and prepared to offer him when God intervened. Yet another picture of where God intervenes because just as He intervened in the Garden of Eden where the universal moral law of God had been violated and Adam and Eve did what was wrong in the sight of God and God told them that in that day they would surely die the day that they ate of that tree. In fact, they did not for He provided another. And that which was made from the dirt had disobeyed God, and God took mercy at that moment, slaughtered another animal, clothed them in their nakedness, forgave them of their wickedness for the blood of the other one. And from them would come the seed that would save us all, Jesus Christ. God is a God who expects, is the God who expects His people to have conviction about Him. And when you consider our nation, when you consider the things that are happening in our nation, when you consider the lawlessness, the brokenness, where it is, it, you consider today that even the concept of love does not even mean what love means. And when a person talks about conviction, they're immediately called intolerant. And where no one has the really a, a very good ability to sit and listen to what someone is saying and critically think about what they're saying. Instead, they choose to feed themselves on one side of a spectrum or another, which, of course, Solomon tells us is very foolish to do. But the reality of it is even Christians themselves don't know what they believe. And this week a poll came out, a large national poll came out that was absolutely terrifying to me as a minister of the gospel, but more than that, as a follower of Jesus. This poll was conducted amongst people who identify as Christians. This poll was done nationally 
amongst people that identified as Christians and 60% of those who identify as Christians in this poll said that they identify mostly as being an evangelical. In that group of that 60% of evangelicals, 40% of them believed salvation is obtained another way than through Christ. So let me put that into numbers for you just using 100. 60 people in the poll said they are evangelicals. Evangelicals have historically been people that have been more uh, centered in the word and they believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. So 60 of the 100 believe that they are evangelicals, but of that 60, 40% of that 60 believes man can be saved another way than through Jesus. So what does that mean? Out of 100 people, 40 who do not believe they are evangelicals believe there's another way to be saved and they claim to be Christian. That should scare you anyway. But the 40% of 60 is the number 24. So that means today in America, in a poll that has been done, amongst, one, amongst several people who identify as Christians, 64% believe, believe there is another way to heaven than through Christ. And I would tell you probably the reason they believe that besides the weakness of the church is because of a false view of tolerance and a false view of Scripture. Anyone that will ever ask you if you ever have the pleasure and the blessing to be asked this question because the way you live your life that someone comes up to you and says, why do you have this hope in you? What if someone were to come to you and say, what is it about you truly that makes you so hopeful about the days we live in, so hopeful about the future we have, so hopeful about... What is it that makes... Are you crazy? No, I'm a follower of Jesus. Well, what does that mean? It means that I believe there is only one way to God and that's through Jesus Christ alone. And there is nothing, no nothing I can do about it. All that needs doing has been done in Jesus for He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father. You have done well up until this point when the person says to you, you are intolerant. And then all of a sudden, you should learn what I'm about to teach you in the next three minutes. What has just happened is the person could not bridge the cognitive distance between what they believe about God and a person filled with God. And so the only thing they can do is call you a name. And whenever you have to call someone a name or make an objective argument personal, that person has surrendered. Mm 
but you shouldn't. So here's how you handle it, and then I'm going to get to the rest of it. So someone comes up and says, what is this? I because I believe that John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father of me. And they say that you're intolerant, and this is what you do. Number one, write it down. This is what you do. You say, okay, well, thank you. Uh, what do you mean that I am intolerant? You don't get upset. If you get upset, you need lessons in emotional health. Don't get upset. So, so the first thing you ask is you ask that person that says you're intolerant. You say, what do you mean when you say intolerant? I'd like to know what you mean. Well, they'll say, well, you believe what you believe, don't you? And you don't believe there's any other way. And this is your response. Number two, of course I believe what I believe and there's no other way. It's what I believe. That's, that's what, you, now you don't say it that passionately because you want to win the person. And then you say this, do you have any belief about it? And then they will tell you their belief. Oh, well, you know, it's all going to sort out in the end and all that kind of stuff. God's bigger than this. He goes by all kinds of names and all this stuff. And so this is the fourth thing. You say, so that's what you believe. And you call me intolerant. Yet those are your beliefs. So let me get this clear, number five. You're saying what I believe is intolerant, but what you believe is belief. And thus you learn the lesson. Calling a person intolerant is intolerant. Jesus is brilliant because Jesus says the measure you use against people will be used against you. And normally what you do is because of the depth of sin in your own life and project it on another. Don't take that bait when someone calls your name. Stay with the issue. And then if you don't get any farther, here's what you do. Here's the last thing. Let, let Jesus take the heat. Put it on him. Let him take the heat. And you listen to that person. And if you've got an hour with that person, let them talk for 55 minutes. And then by the time they're done talking, the Lord will have given you something to say that they need to hear. And then go on. You don't have to fight. And folks, that's a hill worth dying on. So let me talk to you then about what is this conviction that Abraham had. I want to tell you this about conviction. And in these days, you need to have conviction. I want to, I'm borrowing this from another, but we need to know what we believe. You need, you and I both need to know what we believe for our own protection. Because one thing that we do not want to be is a victim of this world, do we? We don't want to be victims. There's enough people that pretend to be victims, but we don't want to be victims because we are. And so you need to have convictions. You need to know what you know for your own protection. And let me tell you what a conviction is. A conviction is this. A conviction is a non-negotiable. It is a non-negotiable. It is a hill to die on. Now you, now you understand why I told you the story of intolerance. Right? 
This world doesn't like people that stand for something and they are immovable. It is so... And and let me tell you something about your convictions, church. Your convictions don't need to be substantiated by your politics. Your convictions don't need to be substantiated by your class or finances or your education. I'm talking about convictions that are substantiated by the Word of God and your own conscience. Amen? These are convictions you must have. A convi- because without convictions to borrow from another, you are basically a cork in the surf. A cork in the surf ends up wherever the surf takes it. And so a conviction is this. It is an immovable pillar of your character. An immovable pillar in your character. It's the character that Rosie the Riveter had back in the 40s that was just as important as the men and women flying the planes or on the front line. Because back then, everybody was on the same team. It was conviction. It was conviction that was immovable. What are the immovable pillars of your life? You have to answer those. But I'm asking you specifically, what are the immovable pillars of your life that are substantiated by the Word of God and by your conscience? The other convictions, that is not my purview. I am a church man, and that's all I am. And so many are growing, many, listen, convictions are these immovable pillars of your character. They are the structure that builds up your life. And we live in a world where many are going to try to crush your convictions because you believe in God and you believe in His truth. Amen? Romy. Whereas Satan is ruling this world. He rules this world. And what is he? He is full of evil and a liar. A person with biblical convictions is a person that is full of good and of truth. The devil is full of evil and lying. And so he's going to crush you. So Truett goes to school this week. He takes a class in uh, macroeconomics. Brilliant course. A great thing to study. Takes macroeconomics. The first line in the book is there's always been two Americas. But he has conviction. So the guy can write it. So what? Kelly said when the kids get out, she's going up to that school and going to go talk to the president of the school. I said, it's going to wait. You just put that on your list. There's conviction. They're going to attack you with lies. They're going to attack you with lies... They're going to attack you about your convictions. They're going to attack you about your God. They're going to attack you about man. They're going to attack you about sex. They're going to attack you about your views on sin, righteousness, and morality, and everything else they can so that you will eventually be crushed to not be equal but be the same. And today when they talk about socialism in America, they're not talking about socialism that Stalin and Lenin had and they had in Cuba. They're not talking about equal opportunity. They are talking about equal outcome. 
that a man who spends his day operating on the brains of people with cancer should not make any more money than the man who uses his brain and works with his hands and has the honorable profession of picking up your garbage. That is called equality of outcome. It's not equality of opportunity. It's equality of outcome. But that's not my purview. Because I read the scripture, I understand it. Makes me wise to the world. But I want to tell you, it is because of my conviction that I don't believe America has a political solution for her future. And it is, it is because of my biblical conviction that I do not believe that businesses, banks, and anything else that starts with a B that's a firm, boathouses and whatever, basketball teams, Baseball teams, it's going to solve the problems of America. No, it's because of a conviction. It starts with the family, the first institution God created. Institution, the first institution with the family. And the family has to be a place where deep-seated conviction is planted that is conviction that is substantiated by the Word of God and breathed into the hearts and minds of the conscience of the children. Amen? Abraham got to this place long before God came to him and said, Hey, old man, you're going to have a child. He's like, uh, <clears throat> And he just believed. So let me tell you this. And it has to do with the passage I read. There are... Years ago, Tommy Nelson preached a message down at Denton Bible Church called The Continental Divide. And it was a message that, that went viral around the world. You can still hear it today, and it was right before the 2016 election. When you're the pastor of, of a church for 40 years, I guess your people will let you get away with what he did. But, and I'm not saying what he did was a bad thing, but I'm just saying I couldn't do it. But he, he preached about the continental divide and about America at the crossroads on the 2016 election. I don't agree with him. Because we've been at a crossroads in this world since about 1517. We've been in a crossroads since about 1517 in this country, in this world. And what I mean by that is because another poll came out this week that really brought about what I'm, I, I'm speaking to you about today in the last 14 minutes I've got. And it was that now you will see, a, if you drive around town, you will notice that there are some cars that on the back window it says ACTS. That is of a particular branch or denomination of so-called Christianity that is teaching its adherents how to come against those of us that hold a Protestant faith that do not belong to the Roman church. Which is exactly what happened in 1517. And this is what they say. This is the argument. It is called the Romanist argument. Here it is or the Romanist defenders. 
It is simply this. More than 40,000 Protestant sects, sects, S-E-C-T, sects, all believe that the Bible is the only and single truth of God, and yet they all contradict each other with that very same Bible. So they say you got American Baptist, Southern Baptist, Northern Baptist, Independent Baptist, Reformed Baptist, Happy Baptist. Well, they, no, uh, that would be Nazarenes. Then you've got Methodist, United Methodist, First and Best Episcopal Palian Methodist. You've got Episcopalian Methodist, Wiscopalian, Wiscopalian Episcopals. You have the Senate of this. You have the Lutherans of Missouri and the Lutherans of this. Then you have, you got the Jehovah's Witness, which we just put that aside altogether. You've got the Charismatics. You've got the Charismatic Pentecostals. You have the Pentecostals that are not Charismatics. You have the Oneness, Holiness Pentecostals. You have everything. Then you've got the non-denominationals. You've got the Charismatics. Then you've got this and you've got that. And they say you all claim the same book, but you do not have the same church the same belief and you spend a lot of your time attacking each other and when you're not doing that you're stealing each other's sheep and you're losing people by the droves and all of that is true because it goes back to something long ago Back in the 1517 were the Dark Ages. The Bible was in Latin. It was held by the Roman Curia. No one could read the Bible. The world was in starvation and there was a young monk named Martin Luther, a brilliant man whose father was a lawyer, or he wanted his son to be a lawyer. And Luther was a monk. He read the book of Romans. He was believed that, and he taught theology for the Roman church. And he came to the conclusion that man is saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone as revealed in Scripture alone for the glory of God alone. And thus in, 19, in 1517 on October 31st at the Castle Church in Wittenberg he nailed the 95 thesis and the world has never been the same since that. Then he, by, the, by 1521 at a place called the Diet of Worms he stood there and they told him to recant, to revoke what he said before the princes of the church, even before the emperor of the Roman Empire. They were going to threaten him with death. They had hunted him down. He said, I can't. Now listen to this. He says, I cannot recant what I believe for it would go against what is revealed in the scripture and it would go against my conscience which is dangerous. So here I stand. And by the time it was done, the emperor of Rome and the princes of the kingdom came and threw their crowns at the feet of Martin Luther. They got rid of their Roman relics and Martin Luther began to translate the Latin Bible into German and people began to live by the scripture and all of a sudden the world was changed because people had the word of God in their hand, not the traditions of men. Today, we are at the same crossroads. And the reason we're at the same crossroads is because what is called today the evangelical church is no different than where the Catholic church was in 1517. For they had added all of these things to the church since the writings of Thomas Aquinas in 1200 and they had taken salvation to be an issue of justification by faith plus works. 
And it was during that time that the terms of purgatory were created and people could buy indulgences. And the reason you see the, the Vatican today was based upon the money that was raised during the Dark Ages for people to buy their loved ones out of purgatory so that they may have an opportunity at heaven. And Luther said this cannot be right. This is what the scripture says does not say, and so he started a reformation. We need a reformation again. Our country is crying for it. America, listen, America was birthed out of preaching movement. That's what my, now you say, who are you to say that? An expert. I have a PhD in it. That's who. Peer-reviewed, academic. America is, was burned out of a preaching movement and they didn't preach your best life now. They didn't preach how to win friends and influence people. They did not preach, uh, uh, give me something else, the purpose-driven life. They stood in the pulpit and held court for three hours and preached. I am not for that in God's people said. <laughs> Come on, Larry. Amen. Larry woke up. So let me give you an example of this today, of why this is important. Let me explain to you very quickly about Roman justification to prove my point about why we need Scripture, why we need to return to the Scripture. You look at America today. What is, Amer what is our Congress not following in Congress? What are they not doing? The Constitution. Why is the President, all of them, writing executive orders? What about the Constitution? What about legislating? Why are the courts not following the Constitution? Why does Ruth Bader Ginsburg, God rest her soul, why did she say in a, in a meeting right after uh, uh, President 42 was elected, why did she say in, in Egypt that when I interpret our Constitution, I use, other, I use other countries' constitutions? That is not constitutional. That's not America. But she did say it. She's answered for it. She's explained it. And I'm satisfied with why she did it. I don't agree why I don't agree she should have, but I agree that she did say it, and I agree that she believes she did what was right. I don't agree that it was. But that's that. It doesn't matter. And so we live in a country today that doesn't even observe the law, and you have Adams, President Adams, that said, at the writing of the Constitution, the Constitution will only work for a nation whose God is the Lord and is a Christian God. But we have people running this country that are pseudo-Christians, not Christians. We have people that are calling folks Christians that are pseudo-Christians. They practice the cult of Christianity, but they don't know the Christ of it. James, you sound intolerant. What do you mean by intolerant? Listen, watch. These aren't my words. So let's talk about Roman justification. The majority of the leaders in Congress today are of a particular religious background, particularly, and this is what they believe about justification. Justification is where God no longer holds our sin against us. This is what they believe from children in the faith they practice. One of them, high, two of them, two of the three highest offices, high-handed practice this. It is, God's grace is poured into the heart of a sinner, making that person more righteous, making it necessary to preserve and increase that grace by good works. 
So in other words, they believe that in order for me to preserve, for them to preserve the good works that are in them, or the grace that is in them, they have to do good works and they have to increase in good works. So for them, that is social justice, that is social work, that is politics. The means of justification is instantaneous that takes place at baptism, not at faith. They believe this. This is their belief high-handedly, and this grace can be forfeited whenever the believer who is baptized commits what they call a mortal sin that does not appear in Scripture that can be something like hatred or could be something like adultery. So you would notice that our politicians today are very lax in standing on any kind of conviction because of their background in religion. They would be viewed as hateful and that's a mortal sin. So now you know why they do what they do subconsciously. And then number five, they wor that works are necessary that begins at baptism and continues the process of justification. This is the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. I could go down here to the Father and go talk to Him. I could go to Munster, to Lindsay, and we could have a wonderful conversation and he would not get upset with me in the least about these because he would tell me in intolerance, this is what is correct. But this is what Martin Luther did that you have benefited from to this day. You have benefited from to this day. The very app you have that has your Bible on it is because of the work of this man, Martin Luther, who had a conviction that he said, I will not move. Here I stand. Do with me what you want, but I will not revocare. You know, as a Texan, you know what I think of? I think of the Alamo. As someone that's been to Israel, I think of Masada. As one who's been to Calvary, I think of Jesus. Do what you must. I will not be moved. And today you look at the majority of churches around us and they have been shaken by who has the best screen or who has the best drummer. The coolest playground, the brightest lights in the best building or the tallest steeple. When we build our church, we will have the tallest steeple. We may not have anything else, but we will have a tall steeple. I have always wanted a steeple. Let's just put one on my house. We have a lady out there that would hate it. All the more reason. Let me show you something. This is what happened back in the 1500s that benefit us even to this day. The scripture prevents, presents justification as an instantaneous, not a gradual work. If you go over here and look with me at Luke, don't look, just hurry. Look, just listen. Luke, just write it down. I don't have a lot of scriptures here, but I do have a lot of turning i got to do. Luke 18, verse 14, watch this. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What's he talking about? He's talking about the tax collector who believed. He's talking about Zacchaeus. In Luke, he's talking about Matthew, the gospel writer, about the tax collector. In John chapter 5, verse 24, see, man is not lifted up because he's brash, it's because he's humble. 
He can come to say, Lord, there is nothing more that I am except I am a sinner and I'm worthy of death and destruction. And Jesus says in here in John 5, 24, He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed unto death to life. And yet those in power in our country and those of the Romanist uh, defenders, they say this, they say, no, justification is not instantaneous. It starts at baptism, but you have to preserve it with good works and sinlessness. I would definitely do that if I was trying, and especially put tithes up there, because if you're going to want to make money, you've got to make them feel bad if they don't give it. And forget birth control because you're killing your tithers. And when you consider in this country we've killed 60 million taxpayers, and it, Genevieve will remember many years ago, and Johnny and Bill, we were sitting at, uh, at Brahms with, with what was a friend of convenience, and we made that comment, who is pro-abortion, and he said, I could care less how many taxpayers, Bill brought, the note, brought it up, I could care how, less how many taxpayers have been aborted so long as I get my retirement check. And it was as if... Some, someone pushed a button, we, no one said a word, we got all up and all left that man sitting there with his ice cream. That's terrible. But you think about it. Justification according to the Bible means that a sinner is declared righteous, not actually made righteous. You need to write that down. The Bible says you're declared righteous. You're not made righteous. You're declared righteous. Some of you may not know that. You need to write it down. It is you are declared righteous, you're not actually made righteous. Why? Because in God's sight you become not guilty. God has changed your status. He has not changed your nature. You're still a sinner. This is in accordance with Scripture. Number three, the Bible teaches righteousness is imputed, not infused. The Roman church says that when you're baptized, there's the infusion of, of grace into you or this righteousness. The Bible teaches no, it's imputed. That is, it is reckoned, it is credited to the account of those who believe. That's Romans 4, 3 through 25. Abraham didn't do anything, did he? God decided, I picked him and he's going to be the guy. And he didn't pick him because he knew what Abraham would do. He picked him because he knew that what he was going to do in Abraham, Abraham couldn't do. Abraham was a hundred-year-old man, and hundred-year-old men, as far as I know, don't father children. So Abraham couldn't have even done it, right? And when God found Abram, what was he doing? He was worshiping the moon. He was a moon worshiper. And yet God chose him for his glory, and we are here because of Abraham. Our father Abraham... He had a son. However that song goes. It's not in the hymn book, so I don't know. And it's not because of their own righteousness. Because of an alien righteousness that is outside. Go over here to Philippians 3 verse 9. This is so important. Philippians 3, this, it's this extra nos concept. I've talked to you many times. This alien righteousness. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Also known as 1 Philippians. That's how I wrote it on here for some strange reason. Philippians chapter 3 verse 9, And may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. 
So therefore, the righteousness that we have, we have that has been given to us. It's extra nos. It's an alien righteousness. It comes from another. And it's from God's purpose, perfect righteousness, which is right there in Romans 10, verse 3. And it is the believer, it is the believers in the person of Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. Almost done. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. See this? Look. This was right here. 1 Corinthians 1.30, But by His doing, you are in Christ. Who's doing? Not the church's doing. Not your doing. Jesus is doing. By His doing, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. I don't have to do anything because all that needs doing has been done in Christ. And yet there are those who say, but you are a Bible-believing person and why are you as a Bible-believing person so different than those other ones who don't believe the same way you do? It's because I'm telling you, it's because they say they believe it and they don't. Just as the Roman church in 1517 believed they believed it and didn't. And a reformation was necessary. And what there is, is there is the church of God that is continually reforming into the image and likeness of Christ, and there are all others. Just like I have told you before, graciously, there are only two kinds of preachers. Those who preach the Bible and those who need to resign. I'm not being ugly our country is where it is because we have failed to instruct our children and ourselves in godliness. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. And the proof of this, our evangelicals believe their hope is in America instead of Jesus. Full guilt of the believer's sin has been, has been imputed to Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we who are sinners may become the righteousness of God. And the whole hinge point, look at it because you've got to look at this one. What Romans is all about is Romans chapter 5. It's right here, Romans 5. Watch this, verse 16. I'm going to read 16 through 18 and I'm going to show you where the whole book hinges. Romans chapter 5. Watch. What did I just say? Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For by it the transgression of the one, the many died. Much more did the grace of God and the gift of grace to that one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. The gift is not like that which came through one who sinned. For the one, on the one hand the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand the free gift arose from the transgressions resulting in justification. For if the transgressions of one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. To which Martin Luther said, My heart became strangely warm. The curse had been broken for him. Faith had been imputed into his heart by grace. And so last of all, 
our response to those who are now coming to be apologetic on why you should join the church, the Roman church, even in our county. They are not bad people. It has nothing to do with them morally as human beings. They are made in the image of God. But if you do not have the conviction of what Scripture teaches, I'll be sending your letter to St. Mary's. That's why the biggest group that makes up the Mormon church today are Southern Baptists. And they wish they never had them. You know why? Southern Baptists love to fight. And so now they're having to have a reformation in their church because they've departed from the faith through the false notion of the abused doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. The Roman Catholics were correct when they said the Protestant Reformation must be put down because you will have a theologian in every pew and a pope in every pulpit. This has become true for many of you or in your life experience because you just think that you love the man standing in the pulpit and he does read some scripture. He's a Bible preacher. That does not mean the same thing. Just as I prayed at the beginning that the, that the leaders should care for their people, so should the pastors. And what they should care for them is where they are today. And where you are today is in an uncertain time with an issue like COVID that is as strong of an issue as slavery was 200 years ago in this country. It is tearing businesses, families, friends apart But there is an answer, and it is not found in science. And as I have told you before, our position officially on the Journey Church is that you do what you feel best for you concerning this because there is not enough truth on either side for me to conclude, but I do know where the truth lies for me, and it is here. And I'll die on that hill. And I think you would too. So in closing, the Romanist defenders put undue stress on works. They are the ones running our country. Their social experiment is part of works. It's a theological underpinning. It is, it, 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 Denies that God justifies the ungodly. As I said, it is God that justifies the ungodly. I don't have to take that position. God does. He justifies the ungodly. Say amen if you're glad He justifies the ungodly. That's Romans 4, 8, 5, excuse me. It's one of those verses, Romans 4, 5. And so what does God do? God justifies the ungodly before He makes them godly. How many of you are grateful that you are a character under construction and that you got to be saved as a sinner, not as someone that had become perfect. Well, that's because you sit here, not at Mass. God, good works become necessary, and so our, our friends and family members, our, our 
loved one Catholics genuinely believed, and they will tell you this, that they are saved by doing good, confessing sin, and observing ceremonies. That list is not very undifferent than what you will find in the largest charismatic churches in America. You will find the same list. And the largest liberal congregations and the largest congregations in America, you will find the list that is similar, that is far away from Scripture. You must speak in tongues. You must do this. You must do this. You must have this. I still don't understand how faith healers can legitimately tell us that they know faith healing and they wear eyeglasses. There is even a book that is written that says, don't trust a faith healer with a limp. And it's written by a Pentecostal. Right? So this is precisely, listen, this is the conclusion of the lesson. This is precisely my thesis. And it's precisely the thesis of the Apostle Paul for whom I take it from. Because just like our modern church today that believes, Christians in America, 36 out of 64 believe in an authentic salvation experience through Christ alone. The other 64 do not believe that that claim to be Christians. You can be a Christian, but how to be one has nothing to do with what you do with Jesus. That is where we live today. And so consequently, that is also what Paul says in Galatians. In fact, in 2 Corinthians verse 11, he says, I'm amazed that you believe a different gospel. He says that in 2 Corinthians 11.4, and you see it nullifies the grace of God, for it is the meritorious righteousness somehow can be earned through the, sacrament, through the sacraments, the means of grace. And he says in Galatians 22.21, if you do this particular sacrament, whether it's a sinner's prayer, or it's baptism, or it's a Eucharist, or it's last rites, or it's the sacrament of marriage, or, or so forth. If you do these things, if, if those are the things that save you, then Paul says in Galatians 2.21, then Christ died, ne uh, died needlessly. He goes on to say that a system that mingles works with grace, then it is another gospel, as he says in Galatians 1 verse 6. And it, it is a distorted message that should be anathematized in Galatians 1.9. And so here's what I want to leave you with. We have far too long tried to decide between what is right and wrong. Wisdom requires discernment. We know what's right and wrong. What gets us in trouble is what's almost right and what's right. That's discernment. What's almost right and what's right. And the reason that we have a problem with that is under this term of tolerance. And what tolerance has done is to teach people not to have conviction. And there just has to be some things 
that you're just not going to be moved on. There just has to be some things that, that listen, and, and in only in my realm that I speak to you as your pastor, the realm that I speak to you in as your pastor is only this realm. The convictions that I'm speaking to you that you need to have are the convictions that are absolutely substantiated by Scripture. And, and confirmed by your own conscience. That's going to require you to do some effort to learn. It's going to require you some effort to stretch. To stretch. And I want to tell you, I found a better way to say this phrase instead of saying an arrogant person is unteachable or a conceited person can't teach, you can't teach them. I found an easier way to say it. A person that's already convinced they know something will never learn. Right? I was reading something yesterday and it said that it was, a, it was a thing on how to determine how many books you should read before you die at your current age. I know, all of you are just, if you want a copy of this, come see me after church and I can tell you how many books you should read before you die. But it says that my average lifespan is going to be, uh, be 79.3. And I sat here yesterday morning about 5 o'clock AM looking at that going, I've got 30 years left. If it's true, I really think I'm going to live to 120, doesn't matter. But you say, why would you? Because I'm going to see, behold the wonders of the mysteries of God is why. Because there's a remnant that still hasn't been its knee. And there's a group of that remnant that has, there has been those who have bent their knees that are going to get up off their knees and dust themselves off. Jeremiah said, and Jeremiah was told something to do very foolish in his eyes of the, in the eyes of the world. But after the nation was captured, God told Jeremiah, go buy the deed to the land. And Jeremiah looked at God and he said, what are you talking about, Willis? What do you mean, go buy the deed to the land? This land has been captured by another. And God said, go buy the deed to the land. And today... And today, that deed is in full effect. And you can find the lilies in the valley. You can see the rose of Sharon. You can see all of those things. You can see the deer panting for the water. And you can still find people there whose souls are panting after God. Yes, we need a reformation of the church. For one reason, my friends, the very word of God cannot be broken. Sola Scriptura. That is the difference today between the church of God and all others that claim it. Sola Scriptura. What does that mean? Scripture alone. It worked for Paul. It worked for Luther. It needs to work for us. And let me tell you why it needs to work for us in America. Because we are the only people on the earth that truly have the time and the freedom to bring it about. And the window is closing.
we still are free. And while we are free, we must do all we can. God, get the Word in our heart. Give us a hunger for the Word at home, not where we read it in one eye and out the other. Let us meditate on it so that we don't forget it. And you say, James, it's too late. I'm too old. You're not Abraham. Now, Bill, you almost are. <laughs> but we call you Hot Wheels. There's so much hope for us. You know why, Jeff? Because he began a good work and he was faithful to complete it. Where does that come from? Anthony Robbins? Tony Robbins? Does that come from John Maxwell, motivational speecher? Does that, does that come from the Gipper himself, Ronald Reagan? No, it comes from Paul. He who began a good work and used a faithful his faith had completed and that in Paul learned that whatever circumstance he was, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he said, my God will supply all my needs according to his riches, glory, and grace. Dear friend, I don't want you to be at Walmart one day and a good friend of yours pull up that you love very dearly and you, you, you don't think any less of them because of where they go to church on Sunday and I don't think you should. They might go have a Latin mass and you come to Southern Jesus Church on Main Street. I don't want you to think any less of these people. In fact, I want you to think so much of them that you'll show them the other way. Because it is not the same thing. It is not Jesus plus. It's Jesus alone. All that needs doing, He has done. And you can rest in that. And then the rest will be His story. Amen? Let's stand. I'll pray and let you go. Uh, Father, thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to share from the Word of God and precepts and concepts from the Scripture with your people. The desired outcome is whatever you wish to make of it and want of it. Father, I cannot help but say to you in front of them, I have never, ever been more hopeful, hope-filled, excited, restless for what you have in store.